This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today we're talking to Dr. Megan Rose, I hope. We've been at this for a while. There have been a lot of glitches, uh, but it, we're now using Megan's uh, Zoom, and hopefully it will work. Uh, as my listeners know, Megan, this is a haunted show. Not the only one. Other, other, other podcasters, when they talk about the world of the dead, have similar problems. Okay, where I would like to begin, folks, uh, with this show is in a funny kind of a place. I'm going to read from something called the Florida of Apuleius of Madarura. Uh, the Florida means the flowers, and he was a Roman author. And this is going to give you an idea of something that we have lost in our world. This was written when the world was still enchanted. And it's a description of what it would have been like if you'd been walking down a road between cities in, the, in ancient times. I cannot conceive, he writes, anything that could give a traveler juster cause to halt in sign of reverence. No altar crowned with flowers, no grotto shadowed with foliage, no oak bedecked with thorns, no beach garlanded with the skins of beasts, no mound whose engirdling hedge proclaims its sanctity, no tree trunk hewn into the semblance of a god, no turf still wet with libations, no stone astream with precious unguents, for these are but small things. And they were small in those days. They were everywhere because we considered the world around us to be sacred. You will never find anything like that anywhere anymore. It's gone. But the world is still here and the world is still sacred. We're going to be talking to Megan today about her book, Spirit Marriage, intimate relationships with otherworldly beings, because we can reconnect with the world in a deep, profound way, not just by thinking about it, but by marrying the conscious entities that are in other levels of reality, like the one right back there to whom I am, as you know, actively married right now. Megan has a doctorate in East-West Psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies, a master's in religion in society from the Graduate Theological Union. And beyond that, she's an initiated ceremonial magician, a Shakta Tantric practitioner, a senior seer in the House of Bright Fairy Seership. She serves as an ordained interfaith minister and psychospiritual counselor and is the executive director of the Entheosis Institute. So this is, a, in some respects, a conventional uh, 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 resume of a, of, of a theologian, but it departs from that. In, it, what is the House of Bri Fairy Seership, for example, Megan? House of Bri Fairy Seership is 
the Institute founded by Orion Foxwood, who I know has been on your show before. Um, and it is really the, um, the flowering, the gifting, the outcome of his marriage to his spirit wife, who is the fairy queen, Brie. And so, um, you know, in my book, I talk about Orion and um, his union with Brie. I interview Orion. He writes the foreword for my book. Um, <clears throat> and I interview Orion amongst a, a variety of other people. But um, Brie is this um, powerful fairy or primordial presence that uh, came to him and uh, was uh, guiding tutelary spirit for a while. And then um, they were married in the folkloric fairy rite and um, a whole lineage of teaching flowed out of that, that union. And that is um, really um, indicative of the type of things that can, um, that can, can arise from these, these deep bonded relationships and, and marriages with otherworldly beings. Now, in my case, my marriage, I think, is with my wife, who became an otherworldly being after she passed away physically. Uh, it's possible that this is not the case. She said a fascinating thing, though, after she died. She said, I'm not Anne anymore, but I will always be Anne for you. And I think I would like to describe exactly what happened. And you can tell me what you think this is. I was at a conference in uh, 2016 and in a hotel room and I was doing my evening meditation. It was about 11 o'clock at night. And I saw suddenly the interior of a vesica Pisces like this hanging in the air in front of me. It was totally black. And uh, at first I thought, is it that a shadow? But then, no, it, it was clearly not. And when I realized this is not a shadow, it moved very slowly and carefully toward me and then turned and lay down across my feet. And I began to feel this most exquisite energy coming into my body through my feet. And since then, I have felt it a thousand, thousand times. It happens every day at least least once or twice and usually and all kinds of funny things happen like for example if i should fall asleep in a meeting it'll be there immediately and it'll be real powerful it'll wake me right up and that's why i think it's my wife because when i fell asleep in movies or meetings or plays in the past she would always jerk me and say wake up mm -hmm. um it also comes down onto my midriff at night and it's it has weight it can, and it's very subtle and careful. It doesn't drop down. It comes and rests, comes to rest slowly. And then this energy goes through my body that is absolutely extraordinary. So it's a mixture of the erotic and the, and the sensual and the spiritual all in one is this my wife? It seems like it to me. I wear both rings still because of this. Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, 
you're the expert on diagnosing what that is. And if it has the flavor and the sense and the, the, the sort of resonance of your wife, then um, I would, I would work with it in that framework. Um, These otherworldly beings, you know, I um, use the term otherworldly or spirit um, because it's sort of the broadest sense of what, you know, um, we understand to be not physically in a human body in this moment, but it really runs the gamut of deities and angels and beloved dead ancestors, um, fairies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the discernment process of, you know, I'm having this encounter and what is, you know, what is this? Is this, an angel? Is this a deity? Is this, you know, that, that discernment process is one of the skills that, you know, the practitioner has to really, um, you know, it's like building the muscle of discernment to, you know, really determine um, who am I being contacted by and why, but it feels like um, there is also a certain amount of, um, volition that we have as a practitioner to um, to request or to even shape the experience meaning um, in my own case with my with my spirit uh, contact um, the the being that was contacting me was this deep sort of primordial um, vegetative horned god type deity. Um, but but vast and not really um, fixed to one identity. And over the years, as I was developing the contact, we sort of agreed on a, um, a deity form, Gwyneth Meath, who is a Welsh lord of the, the dead and lord of the fairy people, as sort of the best, closest approximation of how I would work with my contact, but he's very clear in saying that he's not limited to that. And I think that's really important, like limited to that one fixed um, ideation or, or, or entity. Um, And so I think that that's a, a really wonderful example of when we're not talking about something that is bound by time and space and physicality, there is so much more flexibility for these beings to dance with a variety of different flavors and um, embodiments. And um, for, for many, many years when I was working on um, developing the contact, um, Gwen which is sort of what I call him now, because that's the, that's the name we settled on, uh, would show up, would shapeshift and show up like a lot of different things. And the only thing that I could really um, count on was that it felt the same. The somatic feeling presence of it had a a very unique um, response that it elicited in my body, Um, similar to what you're describing with, with your wife. And so um, what I love about this is that, you know, Stan Groff, psychologist Stan Groff talks about contact with, you know, non-ordinary beings. And he said that, you know, the visual, how they show up is less important than the somatic. The somatic is sort of because, you know, we can 
um, they can put on all kinds of different costumes. Orion likes Orion Foxwood um, likes to say that Bree reaches into the drag closet of his mind and pulls out a different costume to convey um, different things that she's trying to express to him. So I think of like gender and and vision, like visionary, what they show up visually like as a, a language. And the somatic is more like how it feels to us is more of an indication of the, the rightness, the trueness, the authenticity of the contact. Well, that, that, that interesting is this question of authenticity, because it's easy to, to uh, invent this. And, and yet when it's not invented, it's very clearly not invented. Uh, In my case, there's no, I've never seen, I've only seen the one thing, the vesica Pisces. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, that, and that, that's all. I haven't ever seen anything else. I did hear and trying to talk in a seance that I reported on, on dreamland a few weeks ago, which I'm sure my listeners remember, but uh, so the, these, but these entities, there are many of them out there. And I want to I want to move now to just you know of course you know very well that the Christian community, the Christian right, hates all of this and considers it all demonic, and is very paternalistic and very much part of the past. Doesn't know it yet, but it will. And what is the difference between demon and daemon? And why is this not what they say it is? Yeah, so the the daemon, right, is uh, a term that is used, um, I believe it was Socrates that coined the term. It is um, spelled D-A-E-M-O-N or D-A-I-M-O-N. And it's, um, uh, uh, the, the word demon is kind of a, a misinterpretation or a bastardization of the, of the word daemon. Um, in Socrates and Plato's time, the daemon was a guiding tutelary or teaching spirit that each of us were born with and that <clears throat> we kind of think of it in uh in more common terms as like the angel or the demon on the, on the two shoulders, that's kind of what it became degraded into. Um, But originally those were one being and it was a guiding intelligence that was most often benevolent. um, And, um, and I say most often because that sometimes we um, think that these beings should solve all of our problems (laughs) and answer all of our questions and everything should work out the way that we think that they should work out. And sometimes, and, and often the, the tutelary spirit is trying to guide us in onto our truest and and highest path. And sometimes that's a little painful. Um, So these tutelary spirits were otherworldly beings that that humans had the potential to have a, a deep bonded relationship with that guided them. And um, Socrates uh, was um, was very well known for having this um, tutelary spirit that um, that he referred to for 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 much of his um, teachings and work and. It's really only been, you know, the past couple thousand years with the rise of the church and sort of the agenda of um, some of the, the, you know, Christian authorities to 
take away the rights and the power of the individual to reach through to the other world and place in in place of that their gods their spirits their clergy right that was to disempower the relationship between the individual and the spirit world exactly this is very much what it's about what 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 has been put in between them though is something that actually doesn't have necessarily have such a relationship. Uh, I may or may not. I mean, some priests and preachers I'm sure do, but not all, but it's not right. I don't think we have all God. Right. This power to do this if we wish to. Um, I would like to talk now a little bit uh, to move on into this to talking about a little bit about some of the early the people who uh began to bring this into the world in the modern world as it were uh i'm particularly thinking of your discussion of carl jung and his red book and the reason i bring it up in particular is i read the red book with my reading group uh, i've been in for many years over a two-year period, we read and discussed the Red Book. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about what Jung discovered. And folks, some of you already know the, the difficulties that are there with Jung. And I'll just refer to them that he was briefly deluded into believing the Nazis. And uh, he... He, after the war, said, I made a mistake. And during the war, he was briefly taken to Germany. To, they tried to make him into a spokesman for Nazism. And he realized this was completely insane at the time. So I just refer to that because I know that'll be in some minds. I don't think it's a very important part of his legacy. Uh, but an important, very important part of his legacy is the Red Book. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the spirit entities and how he regarded them, which is different from the way, say, I regard Anne as a real being, a physic, semi-physical presence in my life. Mm-hmm. And that's, in fact, what she is. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, but go ahead and talk a little bit for us about Jung. Yeah. So Jung... Um, and we, we cite Jung because the Jung's influence on contemporary psychology can't be, uh, you know, it can't be um, di- diminished. It's, it's uh, you know, so much of our contemporary psychological theory is rooted in Jung, even though, you know, there were times where he had was a problematic figure. Um, but one of the things that is remarkable about Jung and that really only has come to light in the last 10 years is this Red Book encounters that he was having. Uh, it was at a time in his life where he had studied with Freud um, and um, was already a fairly well-established psychologist. Um, and he started having kind of these, these experiences with what he, what he referred to as inner figures um, but that what really clearly to him over his years of exploring these relationships um, 
became um, it became obvious that they were that they were beings, that they were kind of entities that he was having these conversations with. Um, And, you know, during the uh, initial encounters, he thought, well, I'm either I I, I could be going mad um, and I could try and suppress this or I could just lean in. And if I lean in. Um, I need to just allow myself to go fully into these um, conversations. And so that's what he did. He leaned in, he documented the, um, the experiences that we were, that he was having in this gorgeous illuminated manuscript, the red book, which is um, he's got paintings and drawings and all of his writing um, of these encounters that he was having. Um, And one of the figures that was very prominent during this time was a figure called Philemon, which was this sort of tutelary spirit inner aspect, but also this, it became really clear that this was an intelligence that was beyond just Jung's, Um, core self or core personality. And Philemon um, would reveal to him some of Jung's most major um, psychological theories. Uh, And later on in life, he would attribute these um, psychological theories, things like the collective unconscious and the anima and the animus and archetypes, he would attribute it to Philemon's teaching. So here we have a otherworldly or an extraordinary intelligence um, that is giving, you know, information to a um, to a scholar and is taking this information and integrating it in developing teaching systems around that. And he's not the only person that did this. Um, Rudolf Steiner attributes most of his um, anthroposophical teaching to a group he calls the masters that were um, otherworldly beings that he was working with as well. But in both cases of both scholars, the families um, repressed this information for a, for a number of years, although neither scholar ever um, ever uh, retracted that the, their theories had come from otherworldly beings, the, the families, because they were afraid that they were going to be, you know, discredited by this sort of out there otherworldly contact, um, suppressed this information until fairly recently. So, yes. so, <laughs> oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, so here we have two really great examples and they're not the only ones of, um, of, uh, people who created foundational systems of psychology, philosophy, et cetera, um, who are attributing their knowledge to these, these guiding spirits. We're going to take our first break now, folks. Uh, uh, and we are, um, we'll be right back subscribers. I mean, free dreamlanders subscribers will keep right on keeping on. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me, it's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, 
I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it. And I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion. Listen to it. Read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there? In the stars? Or is it also somewhere else? Is it in us? In you? Unknown country, join us today. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us. Join the questions. Join the search. Join the adventure. Unknowncountry.com There's no place like it in the world. And subscribers, uh, please do take a look at the new edition of Communion and especially the audio book. We're talking to Megan Rose. Her website is drmeganrose.com. Her new book, and it's a powerful, important book, is Spirit, Marriage, Intimate Relationships with Otherworldly Beings. Before we go on, Megan, I think it is important to ask this question. There will be people here listening who want to get into a spirit marriage. What route should they take? Mine came to me. I mean, I wasn't expecting it, but it did. And of course, Anne was always a very unexpected human being. You never, you never could be sure what would happen next in that wonderful life I had with her in the physical. So, but how would they do it? What do they do? Yeah. So, you know, in the spirit marriage relationship, um, there's a proposal. And if we're looking at the traditional sort of folkloric accounts of this, um, the spirit is or the deity. So I use the term spirit, but that's just sort of my catch all for any sort of otherworldly being that isn't currently in a human physical body at this time. So we could be talking about deities or angels or fairies or any number of these um, otherworldly beings. It's typically um, in the very traditional practice um, proposed by the spirit to the individual. Um, It also uh, happens where the spirit or the deity will go to like an elder or a mentor and say to the elder or mentor, I want to marry so-and-so, and and then the invitation will be um, precipitated that way. However, um, you know, we know that we can have deeply devoted, loving, bonded relationships um, with otherworldly beings. And, and right now I'm thinking of like the, the practice in the tantric traditions of the Ishta Devi or Ishta Devata, the one's chosen deity. And, and so much of those practices are around seeking and finding one's, one's deity, um, one's divine self, and then stepping into deep devotional relationship um, that, that can lead into a kind of bonded marriage. And so when people come to me and say, I'm really interested in this, 
what do I, you know, how do I go about it? I, um, if you don't already have a spirit that is, that is sort of ringing your doorbell saying, I'd like to marry you, um, then I encourage folks to find um, a devotional deity, a devotional spirit that they know, like, and trust. And um, again, begin the wooing process, uh, begin the process of getting to know them. It's, it's not all that different um, from human relationship in that there is a process of needing to really discern who is the, the entity that I'm working with? What are they about? What would be the purpose of this union? Um, do I want to deepen this commitment and deepen this relationship? And so you spend time getting to know them. You spend time with them, just like you would a human person. And from that, you may arise the desire to step into this deeper marriage. And the, the marriage, and again, I use the term marriage because that's the most common term that we understand for a deeply committed, bonded relationship with someone. Um, but marriage historically has been entered into for a variety of different reasons. Sometimes it's love and romance. Sometimes it's to um, have a, a, a country or, you know, rule, like we think of the, the, the marriages between, between kings and queens of countries. Um, sometimes it's to do some sort of a project or have a family. Um, so we, spend time getting to know the spirits that we might be interested in deepening with. And then the marriage happens because that there is a very clear union that, um, that needs to take place for that co-creative project to come out into the world. Um, And again, marriage isn't the only term that's used for this. Um, Sometimes it's called a merge or a symbiosis or an indwelling, but it's the idea that the human consciousness and the otherworldly consciousness have come together in such an integrated way that the two beings share a co-creative or a co-creative consciousness, a, a, um, a, a, a sort of symbiote kind of relationship. Uh, the way Orion Fox would describe it is, he says he closes his eyes and he sees into his fairy wife Bree's world. He opens his eyes and she sees into his world. Um, but it's also not necessarily like this impinging consciousness that is there 24-7. There can be times where the spirit recedes more into their world um, or the human is more in um, doing their daily mundane things. But the reach or the contact is much more immediate and the present presence can often be persistent. You know, you say a very interesting thing here when you describe Orion's, and I do remember him mentioning this in his interview on Dreamland in 2017. Uh, the, the, when you close your eyes, you see into their world, and when you open them, they see into yours. I'd never thought of this before, but a couple of summers ago, I found that when I closed my eyes, I was seeing a vividly complex, rich, rich other world, which my listeners know all about this because I've I've even written about it in my book, A New World. And uh, I actually physically entered it a couple of times in the physical. But then they got all outraged at me 
and I, it hadn't occurred to me until this moment that, that, you know, that was, that is the world that is their world. And, you know, we have uh, increasing proof in physics that there is a mirror universe. In other words, that, that, that we are literally a mirror image. There's another universe. And, I'm wondering if all of the stories of going through the looking glass and so forth and so on don't have a ring of an element of truth in them. Mm. Uh, have you ever had a direct contact with this other world? I know well, Orion has. Yeah, I think it's more accurate to say other worlds. Um, if you look at the folkloric um, texts that come out of Wales, like the Mabinogian and other texts, um, we're not just talking about one other monolithic other world. We're talking about other worlds nested within other worlds, nested within other worlds. So, you know, kind of more like this um, multiverse perhaps that's been postulated with, you know, some quantum physics, but um, a, a, a version of that where the other world, like there's uh, the other world of the the dead and the ancestors. There's another world of the fae. There's other worlds where other kinds of beings are there, and um, and sometimes you can transmigrate between the you know and go back and forth. And and in some of the folkloric accounts, um, humans can go into one other world or another or between them. So I think, and, and then, you know, we're just talking about terrestrial, there's cosmically, you know, uh, a sort of um, an infinite number of, of worlds we could be connecting to. And so, um, you know, remember when we are in our physical form, right, we're bound by time and space and physicality, but in these otherworldly spaces, it is... Um, much more fluid and so the ability to 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 move and drop into these different um, frames I think becomes a uh, uh, part of the work of the otherworldly adept um, and certainly we see this in some of the um, traditions like uh, the in the Egyptian Book of the Dead or the Tibetan Book of the Dead, where they're really training the, the human, training the consciousness of the human, that part of us which persists with uh, beyond death to learn how to navigate. You know, in the Tibetan tradition, they call it the bardos, but to learn how to navigate between these different otherworldly places that we could potentially travel to. Um, avoid the ones that are more problematic um, or where we may get kind of stuck and, and move into the worlds where we can continue to do work in the afterlife or perhaps reincarnate. So I think that, um, you know, part of what spirit marriage, um, part of the gift is that we are then um, constantly or persistently connected to an otherworldly being that um, that gives us access that can potentially open the doors to those other worlds for various purposes. I always get um, into myself into scrapes trying to go into other worlds and annoy, <laughs> annoy. but I'm always, Annie, Annie used to say, you really are the most annoying human being I've ever known. And I think that may still be true in any case, true or not. Uh, we're going to take a little break and we're going to go in a different direction. It's not a different, different direction exactly, but we're going to go in, into some of the, the practical levels of this after we come back 
and uh, I'm going to we're going to be talk, uh, uh, talking about something called the Abermelon operation. And it should be very interesting. Free Dreamlanders will be right back. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it, and I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion, listen to it, read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. The UNX Network delivers quality paranormal programming Video and audio streams, all kinds of shows. Jimmy Church is there. Dreamland is there in the free version. So go to unexnetwork.com and you'll receive your monthly newsletter, blog access, event notices, and a free digital copy of their quarterly magazine. How can you go wrong? Check it out. unxnetwork.com We're talking to Dr. Megan Rose, her new book, and it is something else, uh, Spirit Marriage, Intimate Relationships with Other Worldly Beings. As you have heard, you can do this. This is a very disruptive show. It's intended to make enable you to actually do these things, and you're told not to on many different levels and warned about it, and people people love to experience fear as a form of entertainment and to spread it. I know that very well because I was once a horror novelist and I'm good at doing that, Mm -hmm. but, and people love it, but it's not right. Especially not when we're trying to enter a world of people like that, like Annie back there, who is hardly something out of a horror novel. And uh, now this question of the Abermelian operation, melon operation, is fascinating to me for two reasons. First, and, and I'll, she, uh, 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 Megan will explain this in a moment, but I'm going to tell you why it's fascinating. First, because it's had such a powerful effect on human life. And second, I have a huge question. Could it be used now to, could that we, could we, could people who are in contact in this way somehow help the planet? Because right now it seems that everybody who gets into a place of power in this world is either ineffective or horrible. (laughs) I don't see there's any one else. So we need help. Mm. 
uh, tell us what it is first Mm -hmm. and tell us a little bit about its history. And then we'll ask, I'll ask you whether or not we could use it as a force for good. Well, the Abramelin operation is typically used by ceremonial magicians to step into what is called the knowledge and conversation with the Holy Guardian Angel. Um, And the Holy Guardian Angel is an aspect of um, the human that is... I think it's more uh, accurate to say actually that the human is an aspect of the Holy Guardian Angel. So um, we talk about in, and your listeners may have um, encountered terms of like the higher self, right. Or the divine self. Um, And the Holy Guardian Angel, uh, when you look at it in the, um, the ceremonial order texts that describe it is something beyond the higher self. It is, um, what I like to refer to as the divine self. It is the um, this uh, wise intelligence that is um, that gives gives life and and form and shape to um, the manifest universe. Um, and I won't go too into the kabbalistic um, teachings on this, but um, there is um, this understanding that, you know, from, from the, from the zero point, from the void, um, things began to manifest um, and they, they manifest into the 10,000 things. And so um, the way I like to think of it is, you know, you are the fingertip, right. Of the divine pushing its way into the human world Um, making an impact. You're able to pick up things and create things and have a very physicalized impact on, um, on incarnation. Um, The divine or the, the divine self is upstream from that. Maybe it's the body that it, or the cosmic intelligence that is then pushing your expression out into the world. And there may be other people who are incarnated like the fingertips of the God that are, um, that are downstream from this divine intelligence. So in the, um, in the ceremonial tradition, finding the name, right. Or the identity of your divine self of this Holy guardian angel, um, is one of the greatest undertakings that a magician can take on. And the Abra Mellon operation is simply one set of, rituals one set of it's not even a set of rituals it's a it's a sort of protocol that one can undertake to quest for the uh knowledge and conversation with this holy guardian angel so the idea is to establish a contact so that you can then reach back and even sort of lean back into that divine intelligence and it becomes kind of the guiding principle. So in my research, um, I interviewed a um, ceremonial magician, a very high level um, adept who had successfully completed this operation. And um, he shared with me how um, the operation took place over three days um, but the, the actual operation or the ritual itself took place over three days, but he had spent three years preparing himself for this three day ritual. And in the ritual, 
One is sort of hermetically sealed into a temple chamber that one has to construct for themselves. And um, it requires support from the community because that, you know, you need people making sure that, you know, you have food and that you're protected and that, you know, the, the temple is, um, is sealed and, and um, upheld. And so um, what he described when he did the operation was that a lot of the rituals that he did to prepare for it um, were things that he then took into the um, functioning of the, the, the ritual itself, but they weren't necessarily prescribed. They were things that he had to divine and discern with, um, with the knowledge that he had built up as a ceremonial magician, as well as his, um, his various contacts. And um, the goal then is that at some point in that three-day journey where you're um, where you're, you know, in constant ritual. He said he would set a alarm clock and he would do ritual and then he would uh, set his alarm clock and he would sleep for a little while and the alarm clock would wake him up and he would do some more ritual. And he just did that constantly for three days. And by the end of that process, he said he had this um, powerful experience. And he said it was kind of like a reverse Kundalini awakening where this lightning bolt kind of came from the 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 top of his head and ricocheted down through his body and he said he was like just taken to his knees flat on his back prostrate from this um this energy well what he said was interesting about or you know the the um the manifestation of that contact was that um it wasn't like that they, then he, he, he says, you know, in his story, it wasn't like he had Harvey sitting next to him, um, riding shotgun with him, you know, t- constantly, you know, telling him what to do. Um, he said that, you know, after that, he couldn't really do ritual for a, a, a few years. He said he was just, he was really back to the very basics, chop wood, carry water. Um, but when he would ask, what do I need to do? Like, what is the outcome of this? How do I serve my community? Because he led a, a temple at that time, ceremonial magic temple. Um, he said that he got just this download just like a ticker tape of uh, not one thing that he could teach, but like a whole teaching system. And that's really consistent with what Orion described about his union with Brie. This whole teaching system came through these, these, these unions. And so, you know, the Abra Mellon operation is one kind of ritual that you can look up and sort of shape your quest around but you know it's not something that is rushed into um it takes months if not years to build up the um practices the things that you'll do the contact so that when you go into the ritual and you create that space for yourself um you have um uh you have success because not because doing that work and not having success can be a really shattering experience and then you know there's to the psyche um so I think that what I really loved about Frater Lux's story is when, you know, we were sh- sort of sharing and I was sharing experiences that I'd had with my divine self. It wasn't the op- Abra Mellon operation that precipitated that. It was um, uh, something else. But yet we um, knew that the contact was genuine because of, um, you know, it's it's this experience that you almost can't put into words. Like, how do you know? 
the sound of your own soul. How do you know the sound of the divine? You, you, you know, it. it, it's something that is almost um, irrefutable from a, from a, you, you know, um, individual personal gnosis place. Yeah, I love the way that you uh, blur the line between your presence in this and the presence of an external uh, uh, spirit. Uh, the the um, higher guardian angel is at once part of you and above you. Would that be a, an accurate way of? I think so too, and I think that you know I think we we humans in human bodies right now are really into this and that and d- discerning, right? We like, well, I'm me and you're you, and there's this clear separation, right? We have all these uh, these binary separating kinds of ways that we orient ourselves, but I think when we move out of the time space physicality that we are embedded within. Things just become much more fluid and up and down and in and out and me and you. It's not, it's not the same rules. And so, you know, we can be um, both in a marriage and in a conversation with a spirit beloved, as well as our divine self. I didn't necessarily think that when I first started my research, I was like, Spirit marriage is this thing where a human marries this other thing and um, and they form a new thing. And then the divine self is me, but but more than me. And then I met the Shakta Tantric, who is um, both married to the goddess Kali, but Kali is also her divine self, her Ishta Devi. And that just opened up a whole new avenue of inquiry because... Um, you know, depending on who you talk to, the ceremonial magicians will say, no, no, you can't marry your divine self. That's, that's not how we work with it. But um, when I poked Frater Lex a little more on the subject, he's like, well, marriage actually isn't an incorrect term. We just shy away from it because of all the connotations that we have with marriage. And it, you know, what it comes down to is that Um, in some of the ceremonial traditions, and I won't say all of them, um, the erotic relationship with the divine self isn't, um, isn't something that's focused on or even encouraged. But, um, you know, if we trot over to the Indic and the tantric practices, there are that the erotic practices that uses the vitalism of the body that uses the awakening Uh, quickening energy of the body to connect to the divine and to connect to the divine self. And that is a part of their practice. So, you know, part of it is which practice are you working with? We don't necessarily want to muddy all the practices, but we also want to understand that these hard and fast rules that the traditions have created may be more for the preservation of the tradition, as well as what their sort of intended outcome is. And they're not necessarily a monolithic, this is true for everybody, or this is true for all psycho-spiritual encounters. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, we, we've got the last break coming up in a couple of minutes. So instead of waiting a couple of minutes, this is an ideal time to take it now. We will take our last break for Free Dreamlanders. We're talking to Dr. Megan Rose. Her book is Spirit Marriage. Her website is drmeganrose.com. And Megan, 
what can listeners and viewers do when they get on your website? They can, can they contact you? And what do you have? All- yeah, absolutely. I have a, a variety of different things on my website. I have um, a, a course that people can take, a self-study course on spirit marriage, which really takes people into the nuts and bolts of how to develop one of these types of relationships for yourselves. It's got psycho-spiritual practices um, and, um, as well as the sort of historical roots of this, um, I have, uh, uh, sessions. I work, uh, individually with people who are interested in, um, either spirit marriage or a sort of psycho spiritual development. Um, so you can go onto my website and, um, poke around and, and as well as a whole bunch of different um, interviews. I have a series that I call Sit and Sip with Dr. Megan Rosen. I've interviewed a variety of different spirit marriage practitioners, as well as given um, different um, talks on everything from re-enchantment to animism to um, sacred sexuality. All right. On that note, we'll be right back. This is Whitley Strieber. Listen to me now from June of 2010, talking to Alan Lammers about an incredible thing that happened to him on the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia. Here you are in South Sulawesi in the little town in the district of Sandu Batu. You were, what happened? You were told something rather strange. Well, we were told before we went, um, like my, my friends that I worked with in, with the NGO, they told me that when you pack, because it kind of happened by accident, I went out to buy a raincoat. It rains quite a bit in this part of the world. And so I went out and I bought a yellow raincoat. And my friend said, I'm sorry, you can't, you can't take that to Walla Walla. And I said, well, why not? And he says, well, it's the, you can't wear that color. So anyways, excuse me. So I thought, okay, well, what colors can I wear? They, they said, well, you can only wear black or white. You cannot wear any bright colors, no bright green, especially no yellow. And, you know, that's all you should bring. And I, and I said, well, what would happen? And they said, well, uh, people disappear. You will find the rest of that story, and it is brain-bending, in the June 5th edition of Dreamland, June 5, 2010 edition of Dreamland in the unknowncountry.com archive. This archive is one of the richest of its kind in the world, probably is the richest of its kind in the world, filled with extraordinary shows of which this show is certainly one, this show with Alan Lammers. You will never have heard anything like it. It does what Dreamland is here to do. It opens your mind to the fact that we live inside a hidden reality that we prefer not to acknowledge, but not here. Here on unknowncountry.com, we do acknowledge it. We live in it and we love it. Subscribe today. You can't go wrong. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and get started.
The UNX Network delivers quality paranormal programming, video and audio streams, all kinds of shows. Jimmy Church is there. Dreamland is there in the free version. So go to unexnetwork.com and you'll receive your monthly newsletter, blog access, event notices, and a free digital copy of their quarterly magazine. How can you go wrong? Check it out. unxnetwork.com We're talking to Dr. Megan Rose about spirit marriage. And it is something that I think that we don't, we, we live in a world that has gone soul blind. And you have to, you have to open, open your eyes. You have to have your vision cleared in order to see what's real. And I've been fortunate in that I had that done by the visitors who started to try to wake me up in, um, actually it was the summer of 1985 and I, I they couldn't succeed and couldn't succeed and came back and forth trying to fulfill what was an obligation to them that had been incurred by a, 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 a pact that I had made in my between lives that I have now remembered, but didn't know at the time. Finally, they just got sick of it and beat me up in uh, December of 1985, which became what's known as the communion experience. Mm -hmm. Over the years, I would, I had a, the years after that, the, the next few years, I had a, both a physical and a spiritual marriage with one of these entities who came to me a number of times in the physical and had physical sex with me. And it was very disturbing to me because uh, I was so embarrassed because I couldn't stop it. And I was physically helpless. I was not able to move when it happened. And it was so intense. I didn't want to move anyway, to be honest with you. So, and I was felt like I was being disloyal to my wife and I told her about it and she was completely not un, unbothered by it to the extent that my friend, Jeffrey Kripal, the professor, Jeffrey Kripal, who with whom I wrote the book supernatural evolved the theory that maybe this was Anne, this entity was also Anne. And what is that about? Do you have any thoughts about we, we, we've just, the reason I brought it up, of course, is we've just been talking about this blurred line between the self and the, the spirit world externally. And it might not be so blurred because, I mean, I had physical sex with this being. And I even know one of the people who was there to witness it. Uh, so it happened. What happened, do you think? Do you think it was, in some sense, it was Anne? And Anne was um, incarnate at the time, correct? Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, we are, I really think of humans as constellate beings, like a constellation of beings and intelligences. I mean, even if we look at it from like an Asagioli psychosynthesis perspective, we have all these lovely inner aspects of ourself that is our sort of local self. And then 
we have um, other aspects of our extraordinary self that are nested within, as we were just discussing, deity, but other perhaps um, other perhaps strains or or uh, manifestations of of beings. So you know, you look at like the folkloric fairy accounts of um, humans mating with the fairies and then giving. Um, and then giving birth to offspring that are then hybrid fairy and human offspring that even as recent as, you know, Dion Fortune's writings in the 1940s was um, talking about these kinds of hybrid beings. And so um, that means that our human DNA may not be as human as we think it is. Right. And so that then gives us, if, if we, if we, if we sort of open ourselves to that line of inquiry, that means that we are um, composite or nested beings within a lot of different otherworldly, potentially otherworldly groups. And so, you know, was it Anne's fairy self that was encountering, you were encountering, was it an aspect of her divine self? Was it her, um, you know, in the witchcraft traditions, we talk about the fetch, um, there are, you know, the human consciousness and even the human body has many different layers and many different um, manifestations of consciousness. Um, and, you know, we can't go to too far down the rabbit hole of um, esoteric body theory, but suffice it to say that um, there are layers of the human body that is the physical, the subtle, the morphic, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that, you know, what is paramount in these types of discussions is that we cultivate um, what I call the three D's of spirit marriage or really of any kind of extraordinary contact. And that is devotion. First and foremost, what are we devoted to? Um, and that is really establishing the know, like, and trust factor with the beings that we're working with. So we want, and, and my research really has, has focused primarily on ben beneficent beings that we know, we like, we trust them, we even fall in love with them. And so we want that type of devotional relationship within. Um, and then the second practice is discernment, really being able to discern what is the spirit, what does it want, what is the agenda, is it this, is it that, and that is a whole that's a whole art of discernment, right? That uses divination um, and. Um, you know, in my own discernment process, it was like divination, mentorship from people that were my elders that could help me discern tools, teaching spiritual technologies, rituals that helped constellate my magical body so that I could discern what was coming as like an inner aspect of me versus something that was more external to me. And then discipline um, is the third D, and that is doing the practices doing the work, showing up every day and building, right? These aren't things that just happen overnight. We build them, we cultivate, we develop the practices in the magical body and the discipline practice of getting to know the otherworldly beings. You know, if you had a, a person that you were wanting to get to know, you wouldn't expect to know them if you didn't spend time with them. And That's so- true. We have to spend time with these beings. And sometimes we don't know. I will tell you, Whitley, that at the beginning of this 
whole research inquiry, it was precipitated because this being came to me and said, I want to marry you. And I didn't know who the heck it was or what it wanted. And so I spent, so the marriage proposal happened like in 2002 and we didn't actually get married till 2018. I spent years trying to discern and really understand. And it, it really was the, the seed of inquiry that gave rise to what became my PhD dissertation. And now this book was trying to discern. Um, and I decided that discerning wasn't just about reading all the historical accounts, but talking to people living in this day and age that practice this and understanding how they did it so that I could better discern who this contact was. And, you know, like I said earlier, what became clear was that there was some negotiation Negotiation as to who the contact was going to constellate as for me, um, because that um, because that there's some fluidity there. So you know it doesn't exactly answer your question, but I think that it you know it gives this sense of like we have to show up and do the work on our side to to cultivate the relationship. Well, that, that is so important. If you don't show up, nothing happens, and that's why I do, I do my, my work, which is known as the sensing exercise that my listeners all know about. And the subscribers can find examples of on the website uh, every day, three times a day, every day, seven days a week, unless I'm physically unable to do so. Very interesting to me is this, how these relationships work. Uh, uh, like I know how my relationship with my wife works. It, it can be very central, never sexual, not not anymore, but very sensual. And I want to ask you about the relationship you have and who you are, who who it is with. How much, how well do you know them at this point? Yeah. So, um, like I said, and I can't remember. I, I apologize, Whitley, because that since we've had like three different stops and starts, I can't remember what I've said in this um, this take. Okay, well, you were talking about the 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 request for marriage that mm-hmm. happened in two thousand and four, I believe, and then all the years later, mm-hmm. you finally sort of said yes and mm-hmm. opened yourself to this. Mm-hmm. And what was it like after? What is it like? I guess you're still married and. What is it like, this marriage like for you? What's your experience of it? Um, it's interesting. The Originally, the relationship was very much um, the, the being, Gwen, would come to me in, when I was dreaming. And it was very erotic in the, in the beginning. Um, and that was actually the somatic cue that I would know that it was Gwen. I would have this very strong um, arousal, but not in, not in a purely sexual way. It was like, like I would be lit up like a Christmas tree, like everything would go into exaltation. Um, and that was very connected to my Kundalini Shakti. So this in this innate um, vitality in my body would sort of shoot up my spine and I would go into this exalted state, most often in dreams when I was encountering this being. And he would show up in a whole host of different um, um, visuals, right? For anything from like deities and angels and plants and animals. I mean, it was like gamut. 
but what I would know, and the reason I would know it is him is because I would have the same somatic response, which is what, you know, we talked about Stan Groff said is sort of the telltale sign of um, the encounter. Um, Over the years, the, the erotic aspect of it lessened. And at first I was like, well, you know, why? And then um, as I, as I began my research, one of the things that I realized is that what we think of as, you know, sex here in the West or sexuality here in the West, we kind of have two categories for it. We have sex for pleasure and sex for procreation. Um, And that's sort of our very limited understanding of sexual energy. But if you step into say the tantric worldview, um, sexual energy or eroticism is the vitalizing of the body. It is the awakening of the divine within us and um, sort of uh, precipitates our extrasensory capacities. So the idea of a kundalini rising or kundalini awakening um, re- often um, hastens the development of um, paranormal gifts and abilities in the individual. And so often these kinds of erotic encounters with a being will um, is for that purpose. Um, And I won't say that's true for every single spirit marriage practitioner, but um, for the ones that I interviewed and the research that I did, this was true for many, many, many of them, but not everybody has erotic encounters with their spirit, spirit contacts. Um, Sometimes like we talked about the tutelary beings, but even in the spirit marriage eroticism, as, as you shared, in your case, isn't necessarily like de rigueur. It doesn't have to um, be there as part of the relationship. It really just depends on the nature of what you're doing and, and the outcome of, of the marriage. But as I said, the those encounters began to lessen. And then the encounters in my dreams in, began to lessen entirely. And I thought, oh, no, what's happening? Am I losing the contact? And what I realized at that point, this was about seven or eight years in was that I had been expecting the contact to always reach me. I'd been expecting Gwen. It was kind of like when you're in a relationship with someone and you always expect them to be the one to invite or to call or to reach out. And you're never, never reciprocating that back. Um, I hadn't been developing the rituals, the tools, the practices that, that I reached through to him. And so um, that sort of hastened a period of me really developing daily rituals, daily practices to reach through. And um, and again, you know, during this whole period, I was interviewing people and researching what others were doing and how they were doing it and using some of that to shape my own practices. And then when the marriage happened, you know, I had thought, after interviewing all these people in the nature of their marriages and how the marriages happened, I had thought that it was going to be some big fet, you know, some marriage ceremony ritual that I had with my community there. And it just, it didn't happen like that. I was um, in, in a ritual. It was a Samhain or a, a you know, um, Halloween ritual um, that was uh part of uh, the reclaiming community here in the San Francisco Bay area. And I was actually priestessing an altar for the beloved dead. Um, But it was in that ritual that um, the marriage happened spontaneously. So nobody else in the ritual knew that my marriage was going to happen that night, but there is a, a a visionary practice that we do um, every year as part of the, this, this Samhain ritual called the, the rituals called the spiral dance. And within it, there's a, a, a 
guided visualization where everybody like three, 400 people lay down on the floor and we travel to the other world. We travel to the Isle of Apples, to the farther shore, and we meet with the beloved dead. And I'd done this ritual, this, you know, visionary journey many, many times with that community. But this particular year, when I traveled in vision to the farther shore, Gwen was there and he said, okay, it's time for us to get married. And so the marriage ritual happened uh, that way. And um, it was unexpected and kind of like almost a little anticlimactic because I thought that I was going to like, you know, in, in the in like the voodoo tradition, they have a cake and they have a, uh, a dress and they have the community there and they have a big party and there's an, you know, marriage vows that are exchanged and rings and stuff. And it just didn't happen like that for me. But, you know, um, I also am not initiated into one of these more formal spirit marriage protocol traditions where that would be what was expected. Um, and so after that, after 2018, what I notice is that it's not like Gwen impinges on my consciousness, but again, there is a, um, a daily way in which I have to show up and have communication and have communion. And um, I feel him more of as a somatic presence around me. Um, but he also has been a huge road opener for me, um, getting the book deal, getting the book published, getting them the information out there. This whole material, as Orion calls it, is the love child of my relationship with this with this being. I understand very well what you're saying, because my wife is and I are in a very similar relationship, only, of course, we got married in St. Patrick's Cathedral in the little lady chapel at the back of the cathedral when we were both in the physical. Mm-hmm. All right. You mentioned, interestingly enough, uh, very briefly, uh, voodoo. And, uh, we're, and we're going to end the free part of the show now. And subscribers, we're going to be talking now about a relationship at, or the story of a voodoo mambo uh, called Suzette. And what that means, because we have had on the whole history of Dreamland only one show with a voodoo saint, a practitioner of voodoo. And it's got such a ludicrous reputation in the West. Mm -hmm. It's so unfortunate and so wrong, so childish. Mm -hmm. It is not childish. It is not demons it is an extraordinary journey that is being taken by people in that religion into a relationship of a type that we don't have in the west anymore because we're too disenchanted uh but we'll talk about this in just a minute free dreamlanders thank you as always so much excuse me while i have the hiccups for being with us on dreamland and remember to Go to drmeganrose.com and to explore Spirit Marriage, both her website and her book and in your own life. This is possible. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no reason to be afraid of it. There is every reason to re-enchant the world around you by re-enchanting your own life and opening yourself up to the truly beautiful lady who made us all, our mother of the earth. 
and all who travel with her. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>